Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. Alright, welcome back everybody to the epic narrative. What happened? What happened since the last time we were we were together? Well, if you remember. We ended uh, with a very dramatic time in Moses' life where I believe, and I'm, and again, I know most of the last couple of weeks has just been conjecture, but it's based on nuances of the language as well as um, oral traditions of the Jewish and Egyptian communities. But I believe that Moses had tried all he could within the framework of the government that he was clearly going to be ruler of at some point. And he eventually just got to a place where he was like, yeah, I, I, I don't think I have any other option. I have to take out this taskmaster. Now, I don't think it was a just a general dude who was out whipping a, a Hebrew and, you know, Moses is out walking one day. He's like, hey. I see what that guy did. I'm going to I'm going to kill him for it. I just don't think that's in the heart of Moses. The Bible describes Moses as one of the most humble men uh ever. Now, I don't know if he was, you know, in that in that humility now, although I think the stuttering could have indicated to him that he needed to remain humble because even though he was a genius on so many levels, he also had this this uh, speech impediment that kept him, could have kept him humble, might have kept him embarrassed. You know, it all depends on how you interact with those circumstances that that determine whether or not it's going to be a character developer or a, or a character flaw in your life. Oh, Bob, that was good. Bob's like, yeah, that was good. We should write that down. I think you're right. Well, let's just record it. Oh, we did record it. Yeah. Your circumstances, your response to your circumstances determine whether or not you're going to be uh, grow in your character or you're going to have a character th- flaw. And so I don't know how Moses dealt with his, his speech impediment his whole life, but I do believe he tried all he could to alleviate the pain of his people. And he knew who his people were because of his name, because of his history, because of his literal legend that he was in in Pharaoh's court. But that didn't mean he didn't have enemies. That didn't mean that his presence didn't remind so many of the of the other governors and, and rulers and, and dignitaries of Egypt that he was not one of them and that someday he was scheduled to be their, their ruler. They're, they were constantly looking for opportunity to knock him down, if not a peg or two, to knock him down completely. And I would imagine that Moses' grandfather was very aware of this process as well. And politically, he had a few tight ropes to walk on. And he needed to make sure that he was strong and politically astute, but he also had to be aware of that he may not be able to protect Moses forever. That eventually, eventually Moses was going to have to defend himself. Now, I'm sure he figured that would be when he died. Little did he know, right, folks? Little did he know. So Moses went and he killed this this uh, Egyptian, and I believe it was probably the the lead guy, one of one of the main antagonists of Moses, knowing that Moses really couldn't do anything because he really wasn't a ruler yet, knowing that 
you know, the, the vast political uh, strength of Egypt was to enslave the Hebrew people. And I just think that these two, that like in my head, this, this, this would make the movie, these two guys right here, Moses and the head taskmaster. Now there's all kinds of intriguing characters along the way, but I would, I would uh, use my artistic license and really stretch this one out because I think, I think you had almost like a, a mob uh, or, or cartel type mindset amongst those who were under Pharaoh. And I think that they had their strengths. And one of their major strengths were the thugs that they were, that, that controlled the Hebrew nation, the taskmasters. And their, their uh, political loyalties, I think, were very up for grabs based on who was paying the bills and who had the best benefits. And I just think that these taskmasters had a, f- a fabulous, in my head, it's a fabulous opportunity to expand your imagination. <laughs> but, you know, that's just me. And if you're on the epic narrative, you know these are not random thoughts. These are things I've, I have a lot of fun running around in my head. So Moses kills this guy, remember, and, and uh, the, next, uh, the next day he's out. And he sees a couple of Hebrews fighting, and he's like, he, he intervenes. It's not, it's not as quick and as and as sharp as the verses, you know, make it sound. It it was a conversation, and and one of them finally says, "Listen, no one made you the judge or ruler over us. No one made. In other words, you're not our leader. Like we know what you did. Like are you are you going to kill us? Like you killed him." Like if somebody gets in your way, like you're just as bad as the Egyptians. And and I'm not saying they said that with a whole lot of justification. I'm sure that if if you had broke it down for them, they would know that Moses was not like the other Egyptians, that he had done all he could. But maybe a lot of what he tried to do was kept in secret because he was trying to work the back channels because he really didn't have authority until his grandfather, you know, would would turn it over to him. So he had, you know, he had he had authority in the realm of education and art and the the warfare. But when it came to running the nation, you know, he had to he had to play his cards close to, close at hand. Maybe they didn't know all that he had done, but either way, they lashed out and went for the throat and they said, "Are you, you know, you're just as bad as they are." That's what they meant when they said, "Are you going to kill us like you like you killed the Egyptian?" You're just like everybody else in in leadership, and I would imagine. I, well, I I like to imagine that here in the United States there are good politicians, that there are people who really have entered into that incredibly dark area of life, and they really want to bring change. I just, you know, I I don't see it. I just don't. And I could see having an altercation with a politician and you just go right for the juggler. Somebody who, you know, who desperately wants to bring change is, and, he, and he steps in between you and somebody else in a personal matter and tries to bring peace, tries to bring uh, some sort of modification or compromise to, the, to what's going on. And you just look at him and say, you're just like everyone else. Who, who, I didn't vote for you. You're not my ruler. 
And that's what they said to him. Not that they would have voted, but they're like, listen, you're not our ruler. You're not even a judge. Because remember, Hebrews had their own system of judging through the elders and their own religious world through their priests. So they had their own system of judges. They're like, you don't even, you, you, you have nothing to do with us. Are you going to kill us like you killed one of the Egyptian? So then Moses realizes, okay, something like this got out. Which reiterates to me again that Moses really believed that what he did the uh, last week, what he did the day before, was in secret. He really thought that no one knew what he did. And maybe in the moment, no one did. But maybe there was some outskirting information. Maybe the, the head taskmaster had told somebody on his way out into the wilderness with Moses. I, I don't know. But somebody figured out that Moses killed him. Somebody, and it's a mystery to this day, although I'm sure movies would let you know who it is. Now, it says in verse 15, (laughs) I'm sorry, Bob's smiling at me like, oh, good, yeah, we're 10 minutes in, and Bob finally got to the verse. I know. Bob, I I don't know why, why you're surprised by this. After all the time we've spent together in the studio, Oh, you're not surprised? You just you just still think it's funny. Well, so do I. Ironically, so do I. <laughs> you know, that's because we're the same person, but we try not to tell everybody. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest in Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw their water and fill their trough of water to their father's flocks. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. Moses got up and came to the rescue and watered their flock. Now, when the girls, well, actually, you know what? Let's just stop there. Let's just stop there. There's a lot there. Shocking, but true. It says, when Pharaoh heard. Let me just go through that little phrase, Pharaoh heard. It means give attention, interest, to understand. In other words, those two words take time. It takes time. This to me is very key because so many people read these verses and it's like Moses found out was afraid and thought what I what I did must have must have become known and he fled like grabbed his favorite sandals and ran off into the desert they read the word pharaoh heard in other words they 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 and they don't do any research into it they just put their western mindset hat on and they say so pharaoh finds out and now he's out to kill Moses and Moses is running for his life through the desert or maybe you've seen the 10 commandments movie and Moses is escorted to the edge of Egypt and he is told to leave and never come back and he is wrapped in his uh Hebrew coat and he has his staff and that's all in a, a bag of water and that's all he's given and he's and he's like desperate thirsty dying maybe may you know may never return type of mindset going on all of this is fine if that's where you want to be i just want to spend some time here because i think that this verse took a while i think this phrase took 
days, if not a, if not weeks. This verse takes time. Now, when did Pharaoh hear about what happened? He literally could have heard about it well after Moses had left. See, when Moses found out that it had been heard, he realized, all right, I'm probably going to have to have to hit the road. I have no idea where he went. I don't know if he went back to the palace, if he went to a side house, a cottage that he had. I don't know where he had supplies, but I have a feeling he did not leave empty-handed, alone, with his Hebrew coat on. But, but Pharaoh knew that the political enemies that Moses had were ready to take their shot. Pharaoh loved Moses. You know, it's, it's not like he looked down on Moses. Moses had brought him much success. Moses had brought him much uh, uh, arrogance. I mean, he had a lot to be proud about Moses. The things that he would, uh, you know, the music he would write, the letters he would write, the, ambas- the, 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 the laws that he would write. These are things that Pharaoh could look at and be like, wow. Like you are, I'm so proud of you. There was so much about Moses that that Pharaoh had to be pleasured about. So in all of that, he hears that Moses killed the 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 taskmaster, who you know the I would say the main one. And rather than just say, "Go kill him, boys," <clears throat> get together a posse. Grab your camels, grab your gun. No, no gun. Uh, grab your bow. Grab your spear. Go find Mo. Kill him. Grab your bow, go kill Mo. That's what I'm talking about. I don't think so. I think when he heard it, to me, this these that phrase carries with it such uh weight. Because I think I think Pharaoh looked around and was like, whoa. Whoa, this is bad. All right. I need to take some time. And that's what I think he did. I think he took some time. I think he said, probably said something like, I don't believe it. Bring me some evidence. Well, that was hard to come by because Moses was pretty careful to make sure no one saw him do it. But evidently, he left to buy some evidence or some people knew what was going on or somebody found the body. That's probably what he was waiting for. Bring me the body. Show me. Show. I, I need evidence. I think in Pharaoh's own little mind, he was buying time for Moses because he would, he would have known that Moses was smart enough to hit the road. Right? He would have known this. So he, he takes an interest. It means in the details. He gives attention to the circumstances. He takes an interest in the details. And he wants to understand what was Moses doing. And by wanting to understand, I believe what that meant was Pharaoh listened to the claims. He listened to what was going on. And they were like, listen, he's a migrant. He's trying to start an immigrant uprising. He's trying to take the land for, for himself and for his people. 
right? That would have been an easy line for a lot of politicians to jump on right away. Look at him. He tried to take out the lead taskmaster. He tried to take out one of our own. He tried to kill somebody who would give him, uh, who would stand in his way. Because again, I believe the taskmasters were kind of like the cartels, uh, hit not hit squad, uh, muscle. They were kind of that underground, uh, under the radar armed forces all throughout the land. And they were run by politicians, not by the Pharaoh, so to speak. They were like, he took out one of our own. He took out one of our leaders. He took out somebody who would have stood in his way and led the troops against the Hebrews. He's trying to cause a revolt. Others might have said, hey, listen, Moses is trying to unify the slaves in order to conspire with other nations. Our enemies are already at our gate. And Moses is trying to lead them right down the river, right into our capital. He wants to destroy our nation. He wants all the country for himself. He's going to pay off these other countries, and he's going to install himself as a new pharaoh. All of us are going to be killed. All of our families are going to be killed. No one's going to be left standing. The Hebrews will now run Egypt, and our nation will, will become like the dust of, of, the, of the desert. I would imagine some of these politicians were incredibly impassioned and quite um, colorful in their description of what they believed Moses was trying to do when he killed the taskmaster. They might have even said something like, uh, Moses was using his political power. Remember how he, would, how he would come after us? Remember how he would try to, um, not eliminate, but uh, alleviate some of the restrictions that we had put on the Hebrews in order to control them, to make sure that they don't revolt. Remember how he was always trying to soften it or, or relieve it or, or get it, uh, you know, get it removed altogether. He wanted to give them more freedom. He wanted to give them, you know, less, you know, less uh, work on, on certain days, more breaks. Like he was always trying to curtail what needed to be done in order, in, in order to gain favor with his people. I think this guy was looking to remove anybody who was in his way, and that's exactly what he did. Well, Pharaoh, I think, listened to all these things. That's what I, I believe the phrase, you know, uh, the meaning of the word there, Pharaoh heard when it says to understand. I think he took the time to listen to everybody pile on. Because internally, I believe Pharaoh was wise enough to, to know, I've got to go after him. But I also love Moses, and I want to buy some time. Hopefully, he knows what to do. Hopefully, he's already on the road. I don't want to know where he's going. I just want him to get out. Because although he may never take over Egypt the way I had always planned, at least I'll know he's alive. So the rumors would, you know, uh, well, yeah, rumors. I'm, I'm guessing politicians would have said, uh, you know, politicians tend to always make up rumors. They don't, they don't have to speak the truth, which is an unfortunate thing, at least here in the Western world. I don't think politics has changed much because it's much like the, the spirit of religion. The spirit of, of politics is that of strife. Strife has been a part. That's the same word, strife, um, when it's used in Bible in the Bible. It's that idea of division. They were always looking to divide. They don't have to speak the truth. Just divide, just divide, and try to divide more people on your side than the other side. 
So I think the, you know there was probably rumors that Moses had had uh, threatened uh, killing of other Egyptians, or maybe he had. And this is the first one we've ever known about. And you you remember this guy who disappeared? We don't know what happened to him. Him and Moses were seen arguing a few days prior. Like maybe they you know they might have even floated the idea that Moses was the one who was in charge of this cartel like um, army of 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 taskmasters. My goodness, that was a tough word to come up with all of a sudden. And I throw all these ideas out to you so that you have these ideas in your head when you read these verses, so that you take some time to consider the political and relational intrigue that was going on in that phrase that Pharaoh heard. So I think he he bought Moses' time to go, and I think he, it was probably on purpose. Maybe not, but probably and it says that that uh, and Pharaoh went. Uh, let's see. Oh, when Pharaoh when Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses. Now the idea of killing him was kind of like this: that there was a death warrant issued, but it stopped at the border of Egypt. You could kill Moses, but you couldn't cross the boundary to kill him. And again, for me, that plays into this idea that I have that I think Pharaoh bought time on purpose. I believe Pharaoh knew Moses Moses is a smart man. Moses is going to get out of the country. I'm going to take some time, a day, two days, a week. I'm going to listen. I'm on evidence. Uh, I want to make a wise decision. Like, no one's going to cross the Pharaoh on this. I want to hear all sides. No one stood up for Moses. Everybody is against him. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to exact my judgment. I put out a death warrant on Moses. And I'm sure the people were like, yes! Within the borders of our great nation, if Moses is found, he can be killed. And they were like, wait, uh, mm, great. But we wanted to go get him. And he was, I'm sure Pharaoh's like, listen, all of the things that you've presented to me, tell me that, that his, the biggest threat he is, is if he's in this country leading a revolt of the Hebrews against us. If he's not in this country and they're not allowed to leave this country and, and we keep an eye on them day and night and we have enslaved them to the level that we have enslaved them, they should not be a threat without a clear leader. And if their leader is not in the country, then we have no threat. If he comes in the country, kill him. So I think he split the middle on this and did it with incredible wisdom. Now, Moses had to have a general idea of where he was going to go, right? Anybody in political leadership always had an out. They always had a concept as to where they would go should suddenly things turn violent and they had an opportunity to get out. So I think Moses probably already knew where he would go should anything go bad. And again, he had political hatred enough against him that he would know that there's always a chance that things could go bad. And, and, and so, uh, yeah, he was a very smart man. And it says Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Now he goes to Midian. What is that? Well, that's kind of a hard place to nail down. That's exactly why he went there. They were very nomadic people. 
way beyond the border of Egypt. That's all you needed to know. Placed basically without real dis- discernible boundaries. And, and uh, you know, it's where, where the ones, uh, where, where do I want to say? Where the ones who brought it? Oh, yeah. This is, <laughs> that's right. I was like, I wrote this little note on my, like a, in really small letters. So they were the ones, remember, who were traveling when Joseph was sold, quote, into, Egypt, into slavery and landed in Egypt. The Midians are nomadic tribe that travel in large caravans to trade. And it's usually goods, not people. So the fact that they took, you know, uh, Joseph and they basically bring him down to as far as they can go to Egypt Possibly it was just the Midians. As you know, if you listen to season two, it could have been that the Midians were the first of several uh, groups of people to move uh, Joseph down to Egypt. But bottom line is Joseph ended up in, in Egypt and the Midians were the first people who bought him. So these are the guys who, who bought Joseph or brought him to Egypt. Now, their original, they originated by birth to Abraham. So they are a direct descendant to the Hebrews through Keturah after Sarah's death. And if you remember, Keturah, uh, I think, was one of the names that some people believe um, belonged to Sarah's servant. And that, you know, that, that's why that this, these, these tribes landed uh, somewhere down near Egypt anyways, which is where Ishmael landed as well. Because that's where she went when she was kicked out, yada, yada. Listen to season two. So there was a, they do have a direct line to the Hebrew nation through, you know, and Moses would have been at some level related to them. Now, again, because of the directness of this verse, a lot of people tend to think he like literally ran through the desert in a straight line to this area. But because of the nomadic aspect of this people, there's a good chance that it took some time to get there. There's some commentaries of of this story that I read that seem to think it took years before he sat down by the well or that he would sit by the well a number of times throughout the years, that it wasn't just a one-day you know, journey into through the desert or two day journey. I, you know, I'm trying to, I keep trying to think I should have watched the uh, 10 commandments again before I started this recording, but I believe that they show him, you know, barely making it through the desert. And he finally like gasping, dying of thirst ends up at a well, he gets some water. And then this whole scene happens with him and the daughters of the priest and all that sort of thing. But that's probably not what happened. And he could have left with a lot of supplies, and he he wanted to blend in. That was his goal. His goal was to kind of disappear into the into the trade routes, into the marketplaces, into the bazaars, into the flea markets. He he might have spent several weeks in in a number of villages. Maybe not the first couple he came against because he wasn't sure. Um, you know if they were going to pursue him outside the country. But I'm guessing that over time on the trade routes, he heard 
about this guy named Moses, about the fact that Egypt was after him, and that there was a death warrant out for him, but only in the country. And maybe they said, man, I I hope he got out of the country. Or maybe he said it. Well, I hope that guy got out of the country. You never know what could happen. (laughs) Trying to, you know, disperse any attention that might come toward him. So that I think, again, that that's what he did. He wanted to start over brand new. He had to have a kind of a wild awareness of freedom that he never had before, right? He had been a prince, a general, a politician, a celebrity. He had friends. He had enemies. He had thousands who adored him. He had men who would follow him. He had others who would who would have slit his throat at a moment's notice. He had all of that going on. Every day he had rituals he had to go through, both for um, various idols that were worshipped, but also in, in what he had to wear and how he had to wear it and uh, the makeup and the hair. And, and I think over time, like, he's just kind of letting all that go. Like his hair is coming back. He doesn't, like he had probably very little memory of what he looked like. And, and again, those mirrors weren't necessarily perfect, but they were enough for him to know that he wasn't bald anymore. And then maybe he caught a glimpse of himself somewhere and ran his fingers through his hair like, wow, and growing a beard and not wearing makeup. And being very, um, he would not have been running around outside, you know, without covering. He would have had shade probably carried with him all the time. He, he would have worn clothing that would have been easy for the, you know, the breeze to get through, but very difficult for him to get sunburned. He would have had regular baths. He would have been in, you know, in and out of the river Nile. He, like, there's all these things that were now that, you know, that were part of, in essence, his little world, but at some level he was bound to, he was encaged by. And now he's able to walk freely, literally walk freely. And I'm sure the first few days are very scary. But after the first few weeks, he found himself strangely, um, you know, alone in, in that no one paid attention to him. No one cared what he thought. No one cared what he said. No one cared if he slept on a bed or in the dirt. No one cared if he ate or drank. He had to figure out his own way. Do I think he brought money? Yes. But he learned early, you know, you got to protect it. You got to protect it. So he hid it here and there. He had to watch out for the bad guys. I had I have a think I, I think he had a keen sense for for trouble. He knew how to avoid it. And he didn't as a, as a stranger in in a city, he he would try to blend in and I'm sure the first few cities that didn't happen too well and then over time he figured it out. He maybe even almost figured out how to completely dis- disappear. Because now he's just a traveler. He definitely has some skills. He definitely has a brilliant mind. He can read people and understands their, their interactions. Remember, that was one of the, one of the things that Egypt's um, uh, diaries uh, mentioned. That he was able to understand people's behavior. And he that was one of the things that made him such a good general. Is he, he could... He could bait the enemy and then take advantage of them because he knew what the enemy was thinking. 
He would do the same thing one-on-one. He could read people really well. He understood who to trust, who not to trust. And, and he, he works this whole scene for weeks, maybe months. And I would imagine that his mind, as it gets untangled from all those confinements of politics and leadership and celebrity, he finds his mind strangely at peace. I bet you some of the best nights of sleep he ever had were out there on the road after the first couple weeks of running. When he realized they they weren't coming after him, that his enemies were successful in getting him removed from from the structure power power of structure struck power structure power power the power structure of Egypt. And now he's alone. And he could think whatever it was he was thinking. Like I picture him in a marketplace wandering, you know, place to place, buying a few dates, buying a, not those kind of dates, the actual dates, Bob, stop. Oh my gosh. Okay. He's buying figs there. Deal with that. (laughs) Maybe some bagels. No, not bagels. I know, but he buy, you know, he buys his food. He goes by a well. He observes, he might hang out uh, somewhere where he can just watch. I think he enjoyed watching people and not having any demands on his life. I think he found, uh, I think, he found quiet places to be. And he found them strangely refreshing. And, and I, you know, periodically I think, you know, of, of him like walking down the street in an, uh, in an evening or late afternoon after everybody comes back out on the street from the heat of the day and somebody breaks out, a, you know, an instrument and he just senses that it's a safe spot. So he, you know, offers to play a little bit and he plays something really amazing and people love it and they applaud when he's done and he just kind of laughs and he, he like really laughs for the first time in years. Because these people don't don't look at him as anything but some traveler who just happens to be alone, who has a little bit of money and clearly a little bit of smarts and and some talent. And maybe they ask him to stay and play again or play another. And maybe he does. Maybe he hangs out with a family here and there. But he doesn't stay anywhere long because he's just not sure if he can if he can trust that. Uh, realm of people, he wants to get to Midian. He wants to get to a place that is, in essence, always moving with a group of people who uh, have no boundaries, have no borders, really don't have any major leaders. They have, they have uh, mm, not cultural leaders, what I want to, community leaders. And some of those communities are pretty big, but, but really they're not all tied into one central government. I think he's kind of done with uh, the centralization of government. And it says there he sat by a well. And again, I don't think this was the first day. I think he sat there on, a, on the regular. I think he'd been there before. He knew it was a place of gathering. He knew that he could pick up information from that place. Listen, these shepherds didn't show up every day. There were other wells that they would go to, regions in which they would be feeding their flocks and working their way around. So I don't think he saw this behavior 
that, you know, that we end up reading about in the next couple of verses. I don't think he saw that every day. But I think he had learned a lot sitting by a well in a, in a little uh, oasis out on the outskirts of town, or not town, sorry, there was no town, uh, you know, in a little oasis in a land that has no belt borders. It's filled with, with uh, people that travel the world. And he listens to what they have to say, and he asks them questions, and he maybe entertains them a little bit, and they, they get to know him a little bit. Maybe he purchases um, something from them and then exchanges stories over, you know, over a campfire uh, with some tea. What do they call that stuff? <laughs> some Turkish, Turkish coffee. I don't know. Some hookah. <laughs> oh, that'll be fun. And maybe sometimes he's sitting there and he's just remembering his history. He's remembering where he came from and he thinks, how strange that I would go through all that and be left here alone. Like, did I really blow it that much? Is God done with me? Is it just time for me to move on, to forget? Should I look to start a family should I start my own business? You know, I, I, I can't help but sometimes think he must at some level sometimes felt like he was a disappointment or a failure, that he missed timed his opportunity to become the leader of the Hebrews. I, I think he took, you know, he took on that taskmaster with a sincere thought that it was his role to be the leader of the Hebrews and to bring the Hebrews and the Egyptians together to, in essence, bring this country to an amazing standpoint. But, you know, he failed. And he, he, has to, he has to be looking back at those plans he had and think, how did I miss it? It, was, it seemed like the perfect time. There was only one guy standing in my way, and I took him out. But now it's, you know, it's time. It's time to take a new course. It's time to move on. You know, I, I don't know. Can he control everything? Can he make stuff happen? Is he done trying to control everything? Is he done trying to make things happen? These are things that I think a really wise man can, you know, contemplates when he's in these moments. And I think Moses is a really wise man. And for whatever reason, I think he hung out at this well more than one, you know, more than one day before these next verses uh, roll out. I think he was uh, prepared for for the next, you know, for the next uh, event in life. I think he had decided, I'm done. I think I'm done. I can't go back. The Egyptians don't want me. The Hebrews don't want me. I don't really want to be a leader anymore. I, I think I'm done leading. I don't, I don't, I don't want all that intrigue. I don't want all the, all the back channels. I don't want the subcultures of, of, power struggles. I just want to be alone. That's where I think he is by the time he lands at this at this uh, well. I think he's come to that conclusion. And in that conclusion is where I think the next set of verses um, start out. And you know what? We've been at this for like 40 minutes. I think we're going to end there, ladies and gentlemen. Uh <laughs> I know we did one verse. Well, we covered last week for a while. Remember, we did like 10 minutes on last week. 
Bob's not buying it. He's like, no, you did one verse. That's all you did. You did chapter 2, verse 15. Mark it down. <laughs> okay, I will. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming to the Epic Narrative. I, I just slurred that, didn't I? Thank you so much for coming to the Epic Narrative. I will see you again here next time. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. All right, it's time for Bob Thoughts. One thing I noticed was this year I upgraded <laughs> my recording from the plug in the bottom of my phone, which tells you how old my phone is, uh, to the to some earbuds that pair with it. Uh, not not the brand of my phone, off brand, but. Anyways, I do notice that there is a significant difference in the tone of my voice uh, when I do my Bob thoughts. It seems very thin to me. I think is the is the uh, term that sound people use. It's very thin. <clears throat> it needs more more something, <clears throat> and I'm sure Brian could figure it out. But we don't really do a lot with Bob Thoughts. We just kind of let it ride. Not a lot of production on that end. So, anyways, hope you don't mind. And here are my thoughts. I just wanted to expand a little bit on the idea of getting out of the hierarchy and into more of a communal mindset. I do think that that is something that Moses was enjoying the thought of as he traveled to Midian and as he sat by the well, probably many times throughout many weeks, maybe months, and as I said, some believe it could have been years, where he would travel to the well, which is where a lot of people would be, un unlike the movie where he was the only guy sitting around. There would be, everybody gathers around an oasis, a well in the desert. So I, I think he, he was there um, taking care of business, taking care of life, and untangling from the hierarchical mindset of everything has to flow through the guy on top and and the patriarchal mindset of everything has to flow through the guy on top <laughs> and i think that that mindset uh is addictive because because the guy on top seems to get a lot done and the guy on top um can definitely look like a person of vision and of passion and probably got to that point because of their vision and passion. But in the end, they end up becoming abusive and dismissal of people and uh, of anybody who isn't loyal. And in the extreme cases, which I think happens with dictators and governments, you just eliminate anybody who opposes you, whether through um, jail time or murder or uh what is that ex ex expatriarch no excommunication exile send them into exile whatever whatever it takes you 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 when you're on top you're so encompassed ultimately with power and authority and this idea that i can accomplish what no one else can accomplish if i just have absolute power it's kind of like the Thanos concept in the, in the Marvel characters, right? I can finally rid the universe of all the evil because I'm the only one who has the, the character to pull it off. 
everybody else cringes at murder and and control you know that kind of that level of control manipulation of people but i don't because i know in the end it's what's it's what's best and as as crazy as it is it's addictive to be that powerful and i think uh, moses started to see that and he started to step away from it uh, not by choice but because of the the type of system he was in he knew if i don't get out of here i will be dead because i have now become the enemy of the state i've become the enemy of my grandfather and his power and authority so therefore i have to get out and he did and i think untangling from that kind of mindset is healthy and a communal mindset for a lot of people that they'll in a lot of people in the hierarchical mindset will say about the communal mindset you don't get anything you don't get anything done you don't get anything done uh, and and that's their excuse to stay on top. But in a true communal mindset, there's a level of honor and understanding of people's strengths and of their uh, abilities. And you allow them to operate within those strengths and, and abilities. And when they do, they do so for on behalf of the community, not on a political move to gain power and, you know, get higher up on the ladder. And it's not easy to develop one of those, those communities, uh, especially here in the Western world, because we are so hierarchical. And I mean that for the church as well. Everything I've said about the government is true for churches as well and ministries. So many on top of, of the pyramid are addicted and uh, enticed and drunk on that kind of power. And they look at people who are disloyal as we need to get rid of them. We need to let them go. If they're not one of us, then they're against us type of, uh, it's, it's a horrible way to run a church. And so many churches and ministries have been built that way. And granted, they, they build big ones, but the level of abuse and, and, uh, manipulation and, and marginalization of people that have strength and character because they're seen as threats to the top is astronomical. And I believe the church is moving away from that. I really do. I think the next move of the church is back to the communal mindset. Uh, at Revive the Way, we call it um, the fivefold fivefold leadership. And it, the fivefold, again, is pastor, teacher, evangelist, uh, prophet, apostle. And it's not seen as a ladder to the top. It's seen as a family that honors one another gifts and says, hey, this is this is where you thrive. Like, take off. Do your thing. Go for it. I don't, I'm not in charge of what you do. You do what you do. I might have some input. I might have some, some wisdom, but, uh, let's work this out together as a family. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I really like Revive the Way. Uh, and I appreciate the fact that they've opened up that giving portal so you can support the podcast and you can support us if you'd like. If we've invested in your life and you're like, I really want to help Bob and Lori out. Man, it'd be great. Send it, send us, uh, send us some help. Uh, the portal is available, uh, in the description of this podcast. It's also available on my 
Facebook page. It's available on my um, website. It's available on my Instagram page. Uh, just click it and uh, give. If you can give regularly, that's, wow, that's amazing. If you can just do it once, that's amazing. Somebody heard that we needed a new computer, and I want to tell you, at the time of this at the time of this recording, a new computer is on its way. A massive, beautiful, amazing, amazing computer. And uh, I know the, the the family that bought this for me, a husband and wife. They each listened to my podcast separately. They each came to each other and said, we need to do something for Bob, and they, they decided on the computer. And I want to tell you, they did not hold back. They did not hold back. They gave abundantly beyond anything I could have asked or thought, and they gave beyond their means because they're, they, they love what we do at, at uh, the Epic Narrative. And I hope you love it as well, whether you give or not. I hope it's a blessing for you. I know they were, they were blessed, and they in turn have blessed us abundantly. Thank you all very much for your support. Have a fabulous day. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.